American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. During the final 15 years of his life, Mark Twain's best friend was the vice president of Standard Oil, Henry Rogers, who muckrakers had nicknamed Hellhound. Rogers was Standard Oil's chief spokesperson for most of the two decades the company spent anxiously evading antitrust prosecution before it was finally broken up in 1911, shortly after the deaths of both Rogers and Twain. Twain once said of Rogers, the only man I care for in the world, the only man I would give a damn for, is a Standard Oil fiend. Twain could frequently be found lounging in Standard Oil's New York offices, even as he was simultaneously an idol of and mentor to journalists who were advocating for Standard's immediate dissolution. But in spite of his sometimes confusingly conflicted loyalties, it is evident Twain was an avid student of economics, a vigilant observer of American financial and industrial development, including trustification, and a frequent, though not ideologically consistent, commentator on economic policymaking in the United States. I have explored Twain's evolving thinking about antitrust in my own published work, which you can link to from the episode homepage, marktwainstudies.com backslash antitrust. In 2016, several prominent pundits, among them Thomas Frank, predicted antitrust would be the central issue of the next presidential election cycle. That turned out not to be the case. Who could have predicted all that happened between 2016 and 2020? But it seems they were only slightly off the mark. In just the last month, we have witnessed a dramatic escalation. A recent Supreme Court case, NCAA versus Alston, put the NCAA's long-standing monopoly in jeopardy. President Biden appointed Lena Kahn, a prominent antitrust reformer and member of the so-called New Brandeis movement, to chair the Federal Trade Commission. And a raft of antitrust legislation was just introduced into the House. Importantly, all of these June 2021 antitrust developments suggest unusual bipartisanship. NCAA versus Alston was a unanimous decision. 21 Republican senators voted for Kahn's confirmation. And the five House bills all have Democrat and Republican co-sponsors. When Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Lindsey Graham, and Josh Hawley are all voting on the same side, it should raise some eyebrows. And it seems like a good time to talk to some antitrust experts. Sanjuk DePaul is assistant professor of law and Romana Stancroft research scholar at Wayne State University. She has been a judicial clerk, a labor and civil rights attorney, and has held academic appointments at University of Minnesota, UCLA, and Yale Law Schools. She is writing a book about the legal history of antitrust and has published numerous essays for both academic and popular audiences on this topic. She is joined by a frequent interlocutor and sometimes collaborator. Marshall Steinbaum is assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah and a senior fellow at the Jane Family Institute. He previously worked as a research economist at the Roosevelt Institute and the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. He has also published on antitrust in a wide range of venues. For more about our guests, including links to their work, visit marktwainstudies.com backslash antitrust. This will be the last episode of our second season. Stay tuned at the end for more about the future of the American Vandal podcast. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sanjuk DePaul and Marshall Steinbaum about the complex history and exciting present of American antitrust. I'd like to structure our conversation today around what I perceive as some common misconceptions about the history of antitrust in America. In, in this conventional account, the prime targets of antitrust are giant multinational corporations, 
from Standard Oil, uh, the sort of original antitrust boogeyman to AT&T and, and now Amazon. And the victims of their alleged monopoly power are either customers or would-be small business competitors. And this cliched bigness is badness argument emphasizes things like price gouging and barriers to entry. Uh, and Standard Oil really did sometimes create artificial scarcity simply by choosing what amount of oil to bring to market. And Amazon really has pirated, say, truck bed liner designs underselling small innovative manufacturers, as was detailed in a recent Wall Street Journal investigation. But what both of you show throughout your work is that these examples in the conventional bigness is, is badness narrative eludes how antitrust law is most often applied and perhaps precludes potential applications which might address more pressing problems. Uh, Marshall's work on venture capital and private equity comes readily to mind here. Market power or monopoly power is not always wielded by a villainous mogul like Jay Gould, who was Twain's go-to malefactor of great wealth. You both argue for moving away from the consumer welfare standard and theories of just pricing and perfect competition that justify conventional antitrust arguments. Instead, you position worker welfare as a standard which antitrust legislation and jurisprudence should prioritize. And so let's start with Marshall. In an article published earlier this year, you actually anticipate to some degree the Supreme Court ruling handed down earlier this week in NCAA versus Alston. Why is this decision important and how does it signal potential changes in the application of antitrust to favor labor? Yeah, I think your introduction is pretty spot on in the sense that I would say the endeavor that Cendric and I uh, share is to broaden the uh, conception of antitrust so that it targets certain business models. It's not about you know elevating this or that bad guy if it's Rockefeller or Gould or or Bezos or whoever as you know a villain who needs to be taken down by a, a righteous lawsuit, but rather about sort of how we structure the economy. And I think we you know an important point to make here, since you led in with antitrust, is it's not just antitrust, but I think the two of us would certainly agree on is that antitrust is a, a crucial component in terms of determining how the overall economy is structured and what business models are legal and what stakeholders are served by the capitalist system, if you want to call it that, or just the economy more broadly, to an extent that has not been recognized by scholars, particularly in recent years. So I think you're alluding to my uh, article about antitrust and corporate governance, which came out in Antitrust Bulletin earlier this year, that's uh, basically about about kind of restoring the lens of antitrust that focuses on the shareholder level, uh, the creditor level, as opposed to the executive or management level. If a big company is the defendant in a case, the villain is the CEO of that company. But you know, I think part of the endeavor here is to like kind of lift up what types of corporations and answerable to which stakeholders antitrust as well as these other areas of law are privileging and serving. In the case of corporate governance, what I'm speaking there of uh, common ownership is one particular form of that, which is the same shareholder, the same small group of shareholders owning stakes in multiple ostensibly competing companies, but uh, but using the stakes that they own to affect the governance of those companies, the decision-making that the executives make such that they're more collusive or welcoming to firms that are within the family owned by the shareholders and excluding for uh, firms and other would-be competitors that are not in the in the family of shareholders. So this has been documented very credibly at this point in oligopolized industries like airlines, uh, telecommunications, uh, banking, um, but it's a broader problem. So I wrote in that article, I, I focus on the gig economy, the fact that you have these venture capital firms that operate a business model that is extremely exploitative of workers and do so in ways that essentially replicate that business model sort of expanding out what we consider to be the gig economy as well as uh, operating collusively in, in different markets. So to bring it to the NCAA, you know, that's kind of an intermediate or interesting case because the NCAA is kind of a classic cartel of uh, different colleges that essentially imposes its way of conducting college sports on the different colleges. And, you know, the colleges, I, I guess, you know, benefit mightily from participation in that business model. And at least to date, there haven't been any colleges that have tried to do uh, something different. So you could see the NCAA is, you know, it's kind of a trade organization, if you want to call it that, um, or you could see it 
in some senses representing shareholders or something like another interest that is sitting behind the management of individual colleges that's saying, you know, let's all agree not to pay workers to have college sports be this gigantic moneymaker for us. And the the big leagues kind of play an important role in that because it's like the way that they justify it to their own athletes is you're going to get make big bucks when you go pro if you're good enough. Um, so, you know, for now, you should essentially, you know, work for us for free. And meanwhile, the coach and the president of the university and the athletic director are, are uh, you know, making bank off their uh, off their labor. I might follow up on, on that question of the NCAA later, but I wanted to also sort of lead into Sanjukta's re- recent work. You you frame antitrust jurisprudence as the allocation of economic coordination rights, basically who gets to organize around their mutual interests. And your research in short suggests corporations do get that right to organize, rank and file workers don't. Right? And coincidentally, the, the first organization that Mark Twain identifies as a monopoly is his own steamboat pilots union. In the 1850s, which is suggestive of the irony you talk about. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to quote from the working paper you sent me. The problem and the purpose of the Sherman Antitrust Act was to craft a bill that would capture what legislators viewed as the harmful coordination of the trust while leaving unmolested the innocent coordination among ordinary producers and workers. But at least since the 1970s, antitrust has often been applied in reverse of that intention allowing megalithic corporate amalgamations, but blocking the collective bargaining power of, say, truckers. This seems to be a clear case where the spirit of the law has been lost. Uh, And a lot of that blame is due to Marshall's alma mater, the University of Chicago Economics Department. Can you explain how we got to a point where Uber has less fear from antitrust than Uber drivers do? And how we might wrestle Sherman back from the Chicago school? Yeah, thanks. I I can try. Yeah. So I think that the problems go way beyond the Chicago school and pre-exist the Chicago school. <laughs> so I'll, tr- I'll try to give a, a really summary account. I fundamentally think that's right about the legislative intent and the purpose. And indeed, to just go back a little bit further from the Sherman Act, which I, which I think confirms this point, it's true that common law regulation targeted nascent workers' organizations in the 19th century and back into the 18th century in England, because of course industrialization happened a bit earlier and there was it was actually just also the courts were just much more hostile. Like we have to be careful to say like the early American courts were way less hostile actually, because there was this idea of this is a new republic, we're different from that class-based, status-based, kingship-based, society. This was a two-sided concept, of course, of Republican liberty, as uh, labor and constitutional scholars like Willie Forbath have written about two conceptions of Republican liberty. One conception of that gets taken in this freedom of trade direction later in the 19th century. And you really see both represented in the Republican Party when that party comes about. Both those conceptions are present. Uh, But at any rate, in the early Republic, common law courts are not nearly as censorious of the common law labor conspiracy cases that do come before them. It's also important to, I think, just take a second to note like who these workers were. Obviously, the categories of like labor and owners were not constant through these centuries. Indeed, we have the development of these categories occurring through other aspects of law, through social and economic reality at the exact same time that this whole line of jurisprudence is evolving and the Sherman Act is being passed and all of this, right? So really, we're talking about journeyman workers erstwhile, you know, people who had decent prospects, who had in sort of earlier full-fledged guild regulation, had a pretty good deal, were uh, free citizens of the town, like back in medieval England, had the ability to become masters at some point, and guild regulation varied, but there was a greater horizontality to that structure of economic coordination than certainly the uh, vertically integrated factory employment relationship that we see coming about, coming to full fruition, I think, in the what used to commonly be called the trustified industries of certainly the railroads, but but then in manufacturing, starting kind of with steel in the 1890s in particular. So anyway, coming back to the cases, there is this uh, censorious attitude in the common law 
the script that I want to flip there, because I, I notice it have labor scholars doing this too, is I do not want to assimilate that common law regulation to competition regulation. That's not what it is. It wasn't about promoting competition at all. If anything, you can trace that strain to feudal labor regulation that are fundamentally about repressing labor and their specific to the category of labor. Again, you didn't have labor in quite the, the modern category didn't exist, but you, you know, whether it's laborers on the manorial lands or whatever, like in that technical sense, or with journeyman workers, like I said, it's a little bit more complicated because it's intermixed with guild regulation, which is more horizontal in nature, but there are still repressive elements. My point is, however you parse it, it's not competition policy. It's just fundamentally not what it is. The closest thing we have, I mean, we really don't have modern competition policy at all in the common law, but the thing that's much closer to it is the common law of restraint of trade. And that is not also not really about promoting competition, but it's much closer to what antitrust is about. And it's much closer to what legislators were picking up. And that was, in fact, about preserving the freedom of the tradesmen, the freedom of the workmen to start his own, I mean, it's usually a he, to start his own trade, to not be bound by non-compete agreements with the erstwhile master. That has nothing to do with prohibiting price fixing. And indeed, if you look, it's not a controversial point that the common law of restraint of trade did not prohibit price fixing. And price coordination between sellers were much smaller and were still embedded in traditional market regulation and the moral economy, as E.P. Thompson called it in various ways. Price coordination was conventional. It was normal. You, you couldn't just price coordinate to extort people to any degree, but prices were socially coordinated and that was understood to be the case. The common law labor conspiracy cases were just fundamentally not about prohibiting coordination between workers as special instances of of sellers. And that is how people talk about it, like in the labor world and in the antitrust world. What starts to happen is that the status of masters and the status of journeymen starts to diverge. Some of the masters become factory owners. Some of the masters become workers. Some of the merchants, of course, they get a lot of control over both the masters and the journeymen. But the masters and journeymen definitely diverge and the journeymen descend in social status over the course of the 19th century. Right. And that's why these journeymen's organizations really begin. And so they're a transitional organization to modern labor organizing. Right. But they're, they're transitional in the socio-legal sense between sort of the old guild regulation and, and modern employment regulation and also whatever the economic separation between sort of like capital and labor is, right? Like it doesn't exist in the same way in sort of traditional manufacture. The idea that the Sherman Act was not meant to prohibit worker organizing because they were picking up on the restraint of trade doctrine. The cases at common law really arose under conspiracy, at least in the US. And, you know, there does start to be this idea of conspiracy in restraint of trade, but that's a pretty late innovation. And really, I think there is this very early anachronism that occurs because the federal courts that then read the Sherman Act to limit or prohibit or censor worker organizing are reading back already a particular history of the common law that is already wrong in like 1893. And now it's just been, there's just layer upon layer that's been baked on top of that. Okay, so that's like the labor side. And then the legislative history also, I mean, like the anti-monopoly coalition is workers and farmers. It's primarily farmers, but it's also workers. And moreover, the congressmen are aware of this. You know, the senators primarily, they're aware, they refer again and again to this farmer labor coalition. And so they're just very clear that that's the constituency. The counterpoint to this that you hear is that, oh, this was, you know, it was just like a cynical ploy to do nothing but to quell this unrest or whatever. And I do think it's true that Senator Sherman, for example, who's not the primary author of the act, actually, but he comes from a relatively privileged business background. He is not a socialist or a communist. He's actively saying that we need to pass some legislation to maybe quell more radical change. That may be true, but I don't think that's very clearly the view of the grassroots movement, the anti-monopoly movement as such, which I think is continuous with 19th century socialism in various ways. But regardless, even if that were true, and you know, because clearly the Senate is made up of elite, what I have never understood about the commentary on this is that even if they were trying to quell more fundamental unrest, why does that mean 
that it's not meant to be pro-egalitarian legislation. On the contrary, it's not really going to work to quell the unrest if you don't give it an egalitarian interpretation, right? So in, in short, I don't buy these very dismissive interpretations of the legislative history, but the courts, in any case, did certainly eviscerate any egalitarian impetus that was there, as, as you noted. I think the other thing I think that you, we have to look at, in addition to looking at how labor is treated under competition regulation under antitrust is the firm. I think it just becomes really, really important to look at the form of coordination that does become blessed, that does become privileged in this whole legal framework. And it doesn't start with the Chicago school. It starts really with these courts in the 1890s. I mean, it always multiple causes, but you've got lots of things going on. You've got the New Jersey revolution and corporate law happening. So New Jersey is like kind of the first Delaware. And there's this bootstrapping between what happens as sort of like the first true corporate law enabling statute. Again, it's a, a process. A great person to read on this is Charles Yablon. It's a process, but it really culminates. And I think it's like the 1896 statute in New Jersey, which then becomes like the template for corporate law across the state. And this is where we really complete this transition from a notion of the business firm as something that is authorized by the state that that enjoys state granted privileges. Certainly, this is the view of the corporation in the 19th century, kind of like sort of across the political spectrum. And, and this starts to change to kind of like a contractarian conception, which then becomes like dominant, which is that this is a private arrangement between these guys. And the state only comes in afterward to regulate or not regulate that arrangement, as opposed to sort of like recognizing from the ground up that this is state action in sort of giving corporate privileges or special privileges. Indeed, I would go beyond that and say that all firms have coordination privileges from the state that other non-firm associations don't have. That's why not only workers, but also cartels, so-called, are subject to censor under antitrust law. Sometimes I feel like when I say this, I get the response that, so you want to abolish business firms or you want to legalize all cartels. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we should recognize that this is economic coordination. Often, functionally very similar economic coordination that ironically, the gig economy and some of these other recent arrangements, I think really highlight that functional similarity in a way that maybe gets more masked in sort of traditional vertically integrated manufacturing, although I think it's present there as well. So we have this consolidation that begins with this collateral effect thing that's happening in New Jersey corporate law, these key cases that then happen, not just penalizing labor coordination, but elevating corporate coordination. And it happens in a series of cases from the 1890s to 1900s, culminates actually in the Standard Oil case, which ends up breaking up Standard Oil in various ways, but also subjecting this type of corporate coordination, basically merger regulation to a rule of reason, which then gets uploaded to statute later on in the Clayton Act and the interpretation of the Clayton Act. But I think this is super, super, super important beyond mergers and beyond like the specific issues that were dealt with in those cases, because what happens is to make a long story short or try to that this concept of firm based coordination effectively gets uploaded into the legal concept of competition itself. So my thesis would be that by the time of the New Deal, which I'm not attributing all of this to like FDR, I'm saying that like what happens is that in the 1930s, you kind of get this broad social compact. And that's when you I think you really see the final consolidation of this, because I think that people like Brandeis are actually still contesting it in various ways. I don't think his heirs in the New Deal are, but I think he actually is. Like he's pointing this out. He's pointing out functional similarities. He's not ultimately like a labor guy, but he's actually pretty honest about, I think, extending similar principles about costs, about democratizing coordination across what we now think of as like labor and business. So anyway, when we're coming out of the New Deal and we have like the labor and the antitrust policy of the second New Deal, effectively what I call the firm exemption has been uploaded into the concept of competition, which then becomes transubstantive. It's in antitrust law, but it's also in labor law. It's in, it just becomes a background legal common sense. And I think the Chicago's, which are truly conclude, I think the Chicago school comes and extends that. That's what they do. They pick up on transaction cost economics, which is, you know, Ronald Coe's 
Oliver Williamson, an interesting figure. What happens is the Chicago School extends what is fundamentally the logic of firm-based coordination now is justified in terms of sort of minimizing transaction costs, both justifying an expansion of the firm itself, because like now we should let mergers happen and we should let all this corporate consolidation basically happen because it indicates efficiency in the transaction cost sense. But actually also we should then extend that beyond firm boundaries. As our colleague Brian Kalachi has shown in his work on franchising, essentially this type of vertical control that's presumed to minimize transaction costs, which we can talk about more, is then extended beyond firm boundaries. And that That brings us up to the present because that's how you get Uber. That's how you get modern franchising. That's how you get platforms of the kind that we have now. I really appreciate that you you give us that that long arc because I do think the translation of New Deal economics into neoliberal economics is something that pushes back against the very tempting comparison, I think the very common comparison of Twain's Gilded Age and the big trust of the Gilded Age to the modern big tech in the new Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. That analogy is one that I have used myself. I've written about Amazon and Bezos as an analog for a standard oil and Rockefeller. I still think that's useful Mm -hmm. to an extent because I think Bezos is self-consciously emulating a Rockefeller model. But I also Mm -hmm. think maybe that analogy is one that we depend upon a little too much and it allows us to sort of elude the the history you give us in between what's happening during the depression, what's happening during the New Deal, what's happening during the 50s and 60s. And you bring up the fact that the firm, the corporation, what Marshall earlier called the business model, these things are not static through time. And so I sort of wanted to pass it back to Marshall, who I think is also interested in this question of firm boundaries, right? As in the word firm operating sort of homonymically here, both as a codification of economic agents for the purpose of antitrust enforcement and the difficulty of achieving that codification, maybe particularly now in an age of venture capital, reverse mergers, SPACs, financialization in general, kind of blurs those boundaries boundaries between managers and investors. And the question I have, I guess, is that things like sheer size and market share may no longer be reliable metrics for identifying who is exerting monopoly power or market power. How does antitrust address that if that power is becoming in some ways or has been maybe for the entire history of antitrust regulation, hard to locate in name or harder than we think at least to locate in name? I do agree that just sort of reducing uh, antitrust or within antitrust, the assessment of uh, market power to either market share or firm size is not robust. I mean, on the other hand, it's a little hard to imagine, you know, a gigantic firm with a huge market capitalization not having power to get to this question of sort of where the firm boundaries are and the weaponization of uh, business models that kind of use them where convenient and ignore them where convenient is what Senator was referring to as the New Deal's crystallization of firm-based coordination rights, meaning that that puts a lot of power in the hands of the executives of capitalistic corporations. And then I would say what the New Deal itself actually did within that context was concede corporate control over the economy, but require that the use of that control or the power that that place in the hands of powerful corporations be to some degree answerable democratically, not in the sense of full workplace democracy, but that the discretion in the hands of firm managers could not be wielded solely to the benefit of one set of stakeholders opposed to others. So there's sort of this multi-stakeholder, I mean, I'm reading this book about the New Deal and the DuPont family's relationship to it called the corporate state and the broker state. You know, the DuPonts wanted a corporate state, that is to say, uh, a government that was responsive to what they and other economic actors like them would have wanted the government to do. So that that doesn't necessarily mean the wild and free, free market. You know, that can basically mean conceding regulation to economic incumbents, and they did not get what they wanted, at least not during the New Deal. So the, the point of this book is that instead, what we got was the broker state, which is answerable to multiple interests, including corporate executives, as well as workers and other popular constituencies. I would say the dream... <laughs> since then of of the 
kind of intellectual heirs of the DuPont family has been to reestablish the corporate state. And, and that is more or less what we have now to kind of continue the history where Cendric had left off. You know, the Chicago School basically, to some degree at the behest of the DuPonts and others like them, uh, elevated this idea that the corporation, you know, first of all, what Cendric calls coordination rights reside at the level of the, the firm and the executive, and they should be exercised and wielded to the sole benefit of shareholders, of capitalists and creditors, uh, and not in this broad sense. Well, I guess what I was going to say about the broker state is that you could see that as being a, a model of both the government under the New Deal, as well as of individual powerful corporations, that they are in the position of brokering between competing interests. And that's kind of what we've lost in what you referred to as the transition from the New Deal to neoliberalism. I feel to some extent obligated to to bring up where, where Twain fits into this to some extent has to do with the great merger movement that both of you write about uh, and that Sanjukta spoke about briefly a moment ago, a period that essentially dates from about 1893 to... I have to correct you there. It is 1895 to 1903, and that's important because it was directly kicked off by the Supreme Court's decision in U.S. v. E.C. Knight Company, uh, which basically said that the Sherman Act is not going to be used to break up or in any way impede corporate creditor orchestrated merger, in that case, in the sh- in the sugar industry. Standard Oil got going uh, in its corporate form in the early 1880s. We had railroads that essentially solved their competition problem by trying to collude in the 18 in the late 1880s. That didn't really work. They couldn't get what they wanted either on their own account or from the Interstate Commerce Commission. And and the Sherman Act was passed. So I would say there was a period of apprehension that the corporate control over the economy would not be allowed. Up until 1895, the Knight case basically said, this law that we passed five years ago, you have nothing to worry about there, basically. The the court's got your back. That's what said to J.P. Morgan, basically, do what you've tried to do in railroads in every single industry. That's what would best represent your creditors. The reason I brought up 1893, to, and I, I totally appreciate your correction, is also this is a moment of financial panic followed by a depression, which also helps with the consolidation of the, the corporate landscape, right? Lots and yeah, lots yeah, yeah. of failures. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's an important point. The Northern Pacific Railroad, for instance, went into bankruptcy in 1893, I want to say, and Morgan was you know trying to basically orchestrate the rescue of it when this is what ultimately triggered the Northern Securities case that put an end to the Great Merger Movement. Uh, a few years later, the effect of, EC, uh, of the Knight case was like, how do you recover from a financial panic where all of your stocks are liquidated and you know companies are going out of business left and right? Well, you consolidate and concentrate control in the hands of you know the economy's master creditor, basically. And one of the firms that goes under is Twain's publishing house. And I'll just leave it there. And- well, I was just going to offer a corrective to the corrective, which yeah. is that this is why I recommend Charles Yablon's work, which I think is under read. We get the narrative that Marshall kind of described in a bunch of places, but probably most influentially in Naomi Lemereau's work. And I think there's a lot to that. But I think the reason it's not so cut and dry, and it's true that if the court had come in in night and done something different than it did, this could have really affected this environment. But what's happening with state corporate law prior to that, it is very significant in affecting corporate consolidation, which is already taking off before 1895, for sure. Again, I'm just going to recommend Yablon again on this, because what's happening is that state attorneys general actually are prosecuting a bunch of mergers and acquisitions under either their state antitrust statutes or just their state corporate law statutes, because there's also not such a distinction between state corporate law and state antitrust law at that point, frankly, because until you solidify this firm exemption and this like contrast between intra-firm and inter-firm coordination, there's, there's not a clear line between corporate law and antitrust law. And so what these state attorneys general are doing are bringing these quo warranto proceedings for dissolution of the corporate charter. And these have a lot of success. And then really, it's the New Jersey revolution and the race for corporate charters in New Jersey that puts an end to that. So there's a lot of consolidation that happens already. Again, I do agree that if then the federal courts had stepped into that breach, that would have changed that dynamic. But 
the dynamic was already unfolding, I would think. Yeah, yeah and it's not just Knight. It's also Allgaier, I think, is the case where it said that they can't exclude corporations chartered in other states. So that's like, you know, negative, right. negative federal court finding against right. state power in addition to the negative federal court finding against federal power that's represented by Knight. Right, exactly. It's Allgaier is helping along the interstate race for corporate charters. Part of what's so interesting to me about trying to think about the sort of economic history of the Gilded Age in our own time is that as the sort of accounts that you've both described point out, oftentimes the rationalization for market power, for forming the trust, for allowing the further consolidation is economic stability. Mm -hmm. These are largely unregulated industries. Mm -hmm oftentimes new industries, they're exploitative industries. In the name of providing some sort of stability, we allow for these large monolithic uh, corporations to, to evolve, which is very different from the time we find ourselves in now, where arguably instability is created by the size and the, the expanse mm. of market power. I think that's exactly right. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's also why the AFL under Gompers ends up not supporting antitrust, both because of the fact that the antitrust statute is now being used against workers in the 1890s, but also because of this destructive competition argument. I think that that is convincing to to Gompers and other AFL leaders and a lot of other labor leaders and a lot of people, frankly. A couple of important things to note, and, and I think that there's lots of blame to go around here in terms of people ignoring this issue, both the pro and anti-antitrust sides. Containing destructive competition is something that was done previously under, it's not that we had these like perfectly competitive markets of tiny Chandlerian small firms. I mean, that's just a myth, right? Like instead you had all kinds of complicated forms of economic coordination, but they were socially coordinated. It was understood that in the early 19th century that the state is involved in the state and like the town and the, like it's not always the federal government because the key is that we don't have a national market yet. So often economies are coordinated at the local and the regional level through all kinds of things, through the local window pane makers, are like setting the rates and it's just the rate for upstate New York or whatever, because it's not, they don't have to compete with Delaware or New Jersey yet. Right. And so there is market coordination happening at a geographically smaller scale and in a way that is dispersed across a greater number of actors. That's how I would put it. And so then when that gets destabilized by the new transportation networks that then increase the size of these geographical markets, in addition to exerting power that they've gained through creating those transportation networks in adjacent markets, obviously, right? But when they do that, then there has to be some way of stabilizing competition, stabilizing those markets and stabilizing prices. And then the trusts who have already kind of like gained power through creating these transportation networks in the first place now are saying that they have to engage in that coordination. But I think that the key is, are we contrasting coordination just to competition or are we contrasting trust-based coordination to other more dispersed forms of power that were very imperfectly, obviously, were definitely more dispersed across a greater number of people in the economy, at least in the North, prior to trustification. And the second point is that even as trusts are perhaps stabilizing markets, particularly following the panic, and as, as people have pointed out, like at the time when the Sherman Act is being passed, prices are falling, like stabilizing prices, you know, commodity prices, especially for farmers, is more of an issue, actually, than consumer welfare in the sense of lowering prices. But while the trust may have, in fact, done that, the trustified industries steal, like that's where sort of just modern hierarchical work organization happens. And it's no accident that that's where it happens, right? Modern hi hierarchical work organization is where both decision-making and economic benefits are centralized within enterprises in a way that was not cleanly true before. It wasn't just that we had smaller firms. It was also that manufacturing ownership was dispersed in weird ways. Like people own their own tools. It was a workshop. Like, it was like, just not the same thing where like one guy owns the factory and, and there's all kinds of intermediate things. There's the putting out system and everything, right? But it's in steel, really, which is one of the first trustified 
perhaps the first in manufacturing, you know, outside of transportation and oil, it's no accident that this is where that that centralized hierarchical structure also arises. That that part of your answer, Sanjukta, is so fascinating to me, this idea that the actual structure of the workplace, uh, that hierarchical organization, is something that might not have been as broadly accepted as late as the 1880s. When you read 19th century literature, Twain included, the businesses and the relationships between ownership uh, and employees and managers, etc., it doesn't always seem familiar. But I have to close with the the question that, that heaps me. The more time I spend on antitrust, the more this seems like a history of sort of failure and, and futility. And I appreciated that both of you sort of make allusion to the fact that this can't be an answer all unto itself, that antitrust can't, it has to be part of a larger program of legislative policy and jurisprudential theory. But this this history from the non-enforcement of the 1890s onward, right? Even some of antitrust's biggest scores, Standard Oil and American Tobacco, it's not like the oil and tobacco industries suddenly became bastions of fair competition at good working conditions and respect for customers. John Kenneth Galbraith uses the metaphor of the cul-de-sac, right? Antitrust is a cul-de-sac in which meaningful reform gets trapped and appropriated to other inegalitarian interests. And to a large degree, that's where Twain came down at the end of his life as well. He had harsh words for Rockefeller and Carnegie at times, even as he was increasingly one of their spokespeople. But he, he hated worse the, the Roosevelt Republicans. And he doesn't trust government to redistribute the power of the trust to any benefit but that of the donor class. And that's what worries me now. I, I'm very interested in your, your uh, sort of thoughts about the, the new Brandeisian movement. But what worries me is that, you know, when Josh Hawley and Amy Klobuchar are writing antitrust manifestos, that doesn't fill me with, with confidence, right? So, so many of the political economic calculations of the Gilded Age come down to whether the Machiavellian tendencies of plutocrats or congressmen are more coercive and corrosive, right? And Twain finally sides with the plutocrats, which I'm not saying I, I necessarily agree with, but why should we trust in antitrust, right? Both of you are devoting energy in terms of research time and policy activism. Why do you think antitrust is this preferred mechanism for improving worker welfare? There's a ton to say there. You may, we may surface disagreement between Sendrick and me in this uh, answer to this. So I think, as a matter of sort of historical fact, uh, it's categorically incorrect to say that antitrust is just a litany of failure. Okay. That is, I would say, a reasonable interpretation of the progressive era antitrust. Mm -hmm. but not a reasonable interpretation of what's called the Second Sherman Act, starting with federal enforcement in the late 1930s and culminating at the Supreme Court in the late 1940s with the Seller-Kefauver Act of 1950 and the Eisenhower Antitrust Commission of 1953 or 54. That effort was highly successful at structuring what post-war managerial capitalism looked like. Mm -hmm. So I would say they won a bunch of cases and those cases and winning those cases did have an effect on the way that the economy was structured at the highest level level and who the most powerful agents in that economy were answerable to, namely a broader constituency than just their, sh their shareholders. That's the sort of historical claim that antitrust is a litany of failure is false. I would say the sort of more present facing claim is you can tell by its absence that it's quite crucial. You know, as I think we've shown in a lot of our work, things like Uber and the gig economy more generally are viable because of the non-enforcement of antitrust prohibitions against vertical restraints. And these business models are highly exploitative of workers and the economy more generally to the benefit of a tiny set of, of creditors. Uh, when Prop 22 passed in California, that was a transfer of wealth from the working people of California to the Saudi royal family. That is a very inegalitarian development. And as we said in our work, there's no way to say that, that the absence of antitrust is irrelevant to that. Antitrust could potentially correct that. The reason why antitrust failed in the progressive era was, I would say, a betrayal at the top. Basically, Teddy Roosevelt is in the first 
term in office, brought the Northern Securities case. That was the first enforcement of the Sherman Act against an actual monopoly as intended uh, that was orchestrated by J.P. Morgan. By 1907, he basically had no way of rescuing the economy from the Panic of 1907 other than to accede to Morgan's creation of another merger, the Knickerbocker Steel Company or the into Tennessee Coal and Iron or something like that. I think that's the, the right firm names. Basically, Morgan was like, this is what I'm doing to uh, rescue these firms that are going bankrupt that are bringing down banks with them. I'm merging them. Are you going to bring another Sherman Act suit against me? And, and Roosevelt said no. That was obviously a highly controversial decision. It was contested in the subsequent and informal politics in the subsequent 13 or so years and basically fizzled out with the U.S. Steel case in 1920 where the Supreme Court did not find liability in the Sherman Act. It's not just like antitrust failed. There's a specific narrative that caused it to fail. Political decisions were made that meant that this mechanism for regulating corporations did not have the effect of regulating corporate business models. Those decisions were made again in a different direction in the late 1940s, and that time they did work. You're suspicious of uh, dueling uh, manifestos from Josh Hawley and Amy Klobuchar. Hawley represents a continuity in the history of antitrust in the United States that we're right to be suspicious of. The reason why you have this sort of Jim Crow Southern segregationist constituency for antitrust is is a Hawleyite one from a present perspective. What they were concerned about is what we now call woke capitalism, that you have companies in the South that are answerable to the local racial hierarchy, and those companies are threatened by national corporations, chain stores in the parlance of those days that don't have that subservience to a Jim Crow business model. And they were they were afraid that under a national economy that was created by the New Deal, all of the main businesses that were upholding Jim Crow in the South would be competed out by national corporations that would basically bring social security or whatever, classify their workers, you know, for the purposes of the FLSA as deserving a minimum wage. Like all of the things that threatened the alliance of businessmen and racial hierarchy in the South were threatened by the nationalization of the economy, and they viewed antitrust as a defense against that. What we actually got in the absence of antitrust was Walmart, which is the nationalization of the Jim Crow business model. So the opposite direction. You have a highly stratified business that benefits from racial hierarchy, from the fact that there's an endless supply of oppressed workers that will work for low wages and customers who need the lowest possible price for any given good. That becomes a comparative advantage of a chain stores that began its life in the South in the Jim Crow system and took it national. So had we had antitrust contra Josh Josh Hawley, it would have prevented the opposite historical development instead of woke capitalism coming from the national economy to the South. Instead, what we got was the opposite of woke capitalism coming from the South to the national economy as a result of there being no meaningful antitrust prohibitions on Walmart's expansion. That was interesting to listen to. So I think I want to try to answer by, we've been talking very historically in this conversation, which makes a ton of sense, but I want to actually come in another way to try to answer the question. I think there's two parts that you raised that I want to address. So one is just like abstract from the history for a second and, you know, um, and just like, what can antitrust do? And actually, maybe I should address the other thing first, because I feel like part of what you were saying was just like a skepticism about state power. And that's broader than antitrust. I mean, that's going to apply to anything we try to do. If we try to do labor law reform, if we try to do like, I mean, anything can be perverted. And so that is a bigger conversation, which, you know, maybe worth having, but it's not actually specific to antitrust. Uh, On the more specific concern about antitrust, I will just acknowledge that I, yeah, I mean, I think this was implicit in what Marshall said that it hasn't actually really been tried. Like anti-monopoly has not actually been done. And so while there is historical precedent in various ways in the legislative history, in different visions that people had in, I think you brought up Brandeis at some point. Oh, you brought it up in your question about the new, I mean, I would call myself a paleo Brandeisian <laughs> because I think that Brandeis actually was for a bunch of things that he doesn't widely get credit for right now. Like he was for dispersed coordination among atomized market actors. He is not a labor guy. You know, he comes from an elite family as well, although a different type of elite immigrants, Jewish 
but also Jewish immigrants who were into some spiritualist movement. I think also his parents were. I don't, I don't think he was. Really interesting person. Different from Senator Sherman in that way, obviously. But he did make the connections to labor. He drew out the implications. If I had to say like what my vision is, it's like paleo-Brandeisianism plus Knights of Labor or something. Like you also need the organic working class vision, which is just not going to be represented in this business reform tradition, though I think that's a piece of it. But that vision was not about what he got repurposed for, even in the New Deal. Again, anachronism happening already, like while he's still on the Supreme Court. He voted against Nira, but for a bunch of specific reasons, like Nira wasn't being ex- you know, executed well for a bunch of reasons. This implicates your point about state power, by the way. I'm just going to jump in here real quick to say that Nira is the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, which gave President Roosevelt pretty exceptional powers in terms of regulating the economy, in terms of uh, wages, prices, etc. Even early historians write about it. They talk about the Brandeisian position among like the antitrusters in the kitchen cabinet or whatever as being anti-Nira. That is ahistorical in a lot of ways because Nira is <laughs> continuous with Brandeis's conception of the FTC. It uses the words fair competition and refers back to the FTC Act. Like it's like it's in the statute, actually. And it's like this idea of coming up with codes of competition. That's what Brandeis kind of wanted the FTC to do. So we have never tried tried this because the FTC kind of started doing some of that. It did these sector by sector studies in 1916. By the 1920s, like like Hoover is kind of doing this through the Department of Commerce and it's much more business oriented and it definitely doesn't include labor. So we haven't really tried this. NERA arguably is kind of what you're saying, is which is like the skepticism of when about when we actually try to do something through the state. Now, I'm more optimistic than that. If I wasn't, I guess I would just go do something else, right? If I didn't have some faith that we can do things through the federal administrative state. We were talking a lot about Congress here, talking about these bills, Klobuchar, Hawley. Well, you know, I think the career people and new appointees in the federal administrative agencies, I think that this is where actually there's a lot of democratic potential. I think it is so cool that our new FTC chairwoman is having a public meeting. You're never going to involve citizens and like small business and labor in bill writing. The way that people can be involved, the way you can have the most participatory democracy is at the agency level. And that was like messed up in NERA. I mean, NERA was captured by like Henry Ford, ended up being a system of big business capture. It really wasn't doing the thing of maintaining dispersed markets. And a lot of the good labor provisions in NERA were basically became dead letters, right? So nobody liked NERA is the thing. So I, yeah, I guess I'm cataloging more failures, but I guess I do still have some optimism about reform. So looking at it, not historically, what can antitrust do? And just like putting it alongside labor, maybe because that's been the other thing in this conversation. What does antitrust do? It creates market rules. So do other areas of law and policy. But but really, what does antitrust do? It it decides on forms of economic coordination that are going to be prohibited, permitted, discouraged, or favored. That's one big thing it does. And the second thing it does is that it decides on the rules or terms of competition, the terms on which competition are going to proceed. And I think those are the two things it does. And that's why I would say to be more precise about like the standard I would espouse to replace a consumer welfare standard or an efficiency standard, I would espouse a pro-democracy standard in terms of allocating coordination rights, because that's part of what antitrust does. And then I would propose fair competition as the meta standard for defining those terms. And yes, you still have to work out what fair competition means. This is where the procedural democracy comes in. This is where looking sector by sector, as the institutionalist economists did, together with participants in the markets, at what are the practices in this particular sector? We can come up with some rules. You know, we can decide that we generally want businesses to compete by doing things like technological innovation and being good to their customers and workers, as opposed to competing through regulatory arbitrage, gobbling up other companies and cutting labor costs and creating sweatshop conditions. Like those are high level things we can agree on and for a competition. And then we would need to operationalize them. But so if you look at it on that level, and if you think the state can do anything, those are the things that antitrust is doing. And then it's working together with other areas of law, like 
like corporate law and labor law to engage in both market governance and enterprise governance. Those enterprises that are in the markets, how democratic are they going to be? Are they going to be unionized or not? Who is the ultimate stakeholder? Is it just shareholders? Is it just, you know, or is it workers as well? I do think just on that level, uh, it has a lot of potential and I don't think we've fully tried it yet. I find your assertion that antitrust has never really been tried pretty compelling. One way of thinking about its supposed failure and futility is that it has always been already undermined in each implication, right? Why why would the time be now? What seems like a kind of klepto-Keynesian moment where actual plutocrats are moving into office, right? No longer just the donor class, but actually becoming a part of government itself, right? I call it klepto-Keynesian because it seems as though like every time we have some sort of financial crisis brought about in part by inequality, the inequality is exacerbated and political power is further concentrated amongst the very wealthy. Mm -hmm. So why would antitrust be the tool in this moment? I mean, just to be clear, I don't think it's the only tool. I mean, that's not what I'm saying at all. I think what I was trying to say in that last part is that I think that it is part of a suite of tools that regulate market governance, you know, structure market governance and, and structure economic coordination in a way that is more egalitarian, that is more democratic than what we've had. Um, and I don't think antitrust is the only tool. I don't think it was ever the only tool of the anti-monopoly movement. And I just too, it's not that antitrust has never been tried, but anti-monopolist antitrust has never really been tried. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I, it's a good question. Why, why is it? Why is right now the moment? I mean, I, I, I would definitely I have a very definitive answer to that. Sorry to interrupt. One answer for me first, personally, because just like this is when I'm alive. <laughs> this is what I'm doing. Yeah, right. I don't know. Like, we really have a choice in that. Um, but B, I also don't think it's like an accident that there's a confluence around these. I mean, I hear you about things that are happening that are bad. There are also a lot of ways in which the policy consensus around the economy has been upset and disordered in the last few, I mean, really since the great financial crisis, but I mean, I'm not trying to say Biden is so great or anything, but in Biden's term, I mean, in a ton of ways in areas that we're not talking about, but Janet Yellen's speech is something that we've talked about on this podcast that, uh, earlier in this season. Yeah, all, and all of that. And so I think we see that in our own worlds, I think, to some extent in questions that were thought settled, I think, in legal academia, for instance, are at least not settled now. Like, I don't think it's crazy to think this is the moment. Like, it's certainly very different from 1984 or 1989 or 1994 or 2004. It doesn't mean that we'll succeed, but it does seem like a pretty good moment to try, like, what is ultimately technocratic change that I just would add can never work on its own. So I just really, really firmly believe that. My practice background is in the labor movement, you know, even though that's not primarily what I'm working on now, like, I think that the combination of sort of like good faith, technocratic attempts to bring about egalitarian democratic outcomes with social movements, that's the only way that this moves forward. And I think that that, I mean, I've been surprised to learn recently that that view is apparently not shared by everyone who's, you know, invested in the technocratic change. But I, I firmly believe that. I, I thought that was a great answer. I, I agree it with is, everything that yeah. Centricta said. What I was going to say is that like the reason why it's contested now is what Centricta was alluding to, I, at least as I understood it, when she said that anti-monopolist antitrust has never been tried. So the second Sherman Act period lasting from the late 30s to the early 50s and then the kind of jurisprudence that took shape in the following 20 years, that concedes capitalistic control of the corporation, exactly what Centricta was talking about as being settled by the New Deal. And then it increases the constituency to which that control has to has to be answerable. That's part of what I would call the New Deal settlement, and the New Deal settlement has been abrogated, which is why we're having this conversation now. So it's fine for CEOs to run the most powerful firms in the economy as long as they do so in a way that is minimally 
brokerish, to use the terminology that I employed earlier in this conversation. But if they're not doing that, if they're just using it to their own benefit and the benefit of their shareholders, if that's what firms exist to do, then why would we concede that control? Now is the time when that concession is being reconsidered and potentially yanked back. You know, it was like an entrusting that the legal system there is capitalistic control as recognized in the legal system that was essentially conceded to them in the new deal on conditions. It was an unconditional, or sorry, a conditional surrender, I would say, by by a, a popular movement saying, you can still do that as long as you cut us in in these other ways. And they're not cutting us in anymore. So as I was saying, I think that control is now being questioned. And in fact, the deal was basically abrogated in the 1970s and 80s. It's only this taken this long for there to be any kind it's of backlash life. and yeah. uh, recognition that that's actually what's going on. It's like it's not in our. I mean, notwithstanding everything mm-hmm. that you know, Williamson and Coase and Beckling and and Jensen have said, you know, the rest of us benefit when corporations are run to the sole benefit of their shareholders. That's the efficient way of running the economy. It's not actually true, as we have learned since the financial crisis. To bring it back to what Centrica was talking about, it's literally a trickle down theory of the firm. Yeah, is yeah. is what we have. Right. You know, that workers will be better off if they cede not only operational control, but actually economic benefits up front, too, because they'll they'll be more productive and then they'll get more wages as a result of that. It's actually mind blowing the entire thing, and particularly because then when it's extended beyond for like, it's just the logic becomes unmoored from its foundations. I loved Marshall's account of the sort of concordance between Holly and Jim Crow and the sort of account you give of, of Walmart. But it also raises a question for me, like, it does seem that Holly is in agreement with the new Brandeis school. I doubt that Barry Lynn and Lena Khan agree with Josh Hawley on very much, but they do seem to be in agreement that that this sort of new agenda of antitrust starts with these big tech firms, with with Amazon, with Google, etc. The reason I, I raise that is it does seem like the most direct beneficiary of that will be Walmart, right, will be sort of the set of monopolies that emerged in the mid and late 20th century that hollowed out American cities, right, that, uh, you know, indentured workforces to low-wage labor, right? They seem to be the most prime beneficiaries of this sort of agenda of attacking tech tech first. To to which I would add Rupert Murdoch, who is definitely behind part of the assault on both Facebook and Google. Yeah, excellent. I think that's a really good. I think it's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's. I mean, I, I think we need to regulate big tech, as you know. It's not sort of primarily the sector I work on, but it's. But I, I think there's no doubt that these companies have too much power, and you don't just empower Walmart. You you do empower you know independent sellers on Amazon, for example. You empower you know there there are the other other constituencies, but I. I mean, take your point. And then I think sometimes this gets wedded into this idea that there's some cross party alliance for like broader economic democracy or economic egalitarianism, which I put zero stock in. I mean, I'm not sure who put stock in that or not, but I will just say that I put zero stock in that. It seems to me that sort of curtailing woke capital is as far as it goes and everything else from Josh Hawley is just words. I mean, there's other words about being pro-worker or whatever, but they are just words. I basically agree with that. I would just say it's not quite just words because it did also produce his vote in favor of Lena Khan's confirmation as chairman. But that's still, sorry, no, no, no. I said on anything beyond big tech, on the pro-worker stuff, because he, he engages in rhetoric about workers, right? All of these people do. And that's the part that I put no stock in. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, he's I done see, nothing. He's, he's done a, a, nothing in his career. He voted against. Yeah, he, I mean, he, he, he voted against. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's uh, certainly doesn't inc- support increasing the minimum wage or or any pro union stuff that we would talk about. And all of his association with like American Compass is total nonsense. You know, they're a it's an organization that basically exists to reduce labor standards while saying how they're you know protecting the American working class. That that definitely is complete nonsense. I I do think, however, well, let's just say this. When I got into antitrust, the 
kind of line was, you're questioning the bipartisan consensus that has governed antitrust policy since the 70s, Marshall. How dare you act like a bull in a china shop and break this? The one area of policy where we still have bipartisan consensus, we have to treasure that and and nurture it and keep it alive because it's so great. It's like, I'm looking at what the content of that bipartisan consensus, it's a disastrous for the US economy. So I don't buy that. The fact is, they back themselves into a corner. The people claiming to have a bipartisan consensus now have to look at a roll call vote that has 25 Republican votes in favor of Lena Khan. That's a bipartisan consensus, at least about going out after big tech. So there's very, very good reason to concur with your skepticism about this, both of your skepticism that this would ever go beyond big tech. I mean, I would say big tech has (laughs) brought in an even more anti-worker business model, even than Walmart. So it's not like going after big tech offers nothing to American workers or to, to workers in general. We don't see anything in these bills about workers. Yes, I, I agree with that. That is a so. missed opportunity, maybe because they want exactly the bipartisan consensus to continue and that precludes anything about, about what we're talking about. Well, I don't know why it is or not, but I'm just saying like, like I, I think I'm being pretty moderate here actually, <laughs> because I'm saying like, that's great. If we can get a consensus on getting someone really great into the FTC and we can, you know, who, who will push on other things, mm-hmm. even if the, everyone who voted for her wouldn't advocate doing that. I'm all for that. I'm not like saying that we should only get votes according to some purity test or something. I'm saying I am going to be reality based in my assessments of who my coalition is. And my coalition does not include Josh Hawley. There's no evidence to, see, to think that it's going to go beyond big tech. Come, to come back to my earlier point, I see my coalition as being with the broader social movements. There being a labor anti-monopoly coalition that which I realize there's but like truly and really supporting meaningful labor law reform, which ultimately does need to sync up with I don't think it's just like a quid pro quo. I actually think in I think this like paleo Brandeisian labor vision, like you ultimately have like cooperation between the FTC and the DOL to manage like wage and price skills. So I'm pretty serious about antitrust and about the FTC, but I don't see Josh Hawley ever being down for that, but I see other constituencies being down for that, and that is the direction I would like to face. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. That was Sanjuk DePaul and Marshall Steinbaum. I'm Matt Siebel. For more about this episode, including a complete bibliography, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash antitrust. As mentioned at the top of the episode, this is the final installment of the second season of the American Vandal podcast. We have produced 24 episodes in the last eight months, as this program evolved from a pandemic stopgap into a staple of Center for Mark Twain Studies programming. Thanks are due foremost to you. But I also want to highlight the support of Joe Lamack, the director of the Center for Mark Twain Studies, who has been my constant collaborator and frequent guardian angel. And to Steve Webb, the caretaker at Quarry Farm and composer of our theme music. And Jan Kather, art professor at Elmira College and designer of our logo. Finally, thanks to the 45 guests who have appeared on the podcast thus far sharing their talent and expertise. If you missed any of their episodes, now is the perfect time to catch up. In the fall, the American Vandal will return for season three. We will be celebrating the 150th anniversary of Mark Twain's Roughing It, reconvening our Deep Cuts book club, thinking through the aftermath of grievous losses in Twain's time and our own, taking the show on the road for the first time, and hopefully having some post-pandemic face-to-face conversations. In the meantime, for updates on all Center for Mark Twain Studies programming, visit marktwainstudies.org. I'm Matt Siebold, Associate Professor of American Literature and Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College, and Scholar-in-Residence at the Center for Mark Twain Studies. It has been my pleasure to be your host and podcast producer. Thank you for listening.